This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. And let me just agree with Kevin in welcoming you to marriage night. I'm really glad that we're together tonight. And our goal is to encourage you in, in your marriage. Uh, we, we live in a time where marriages need encouragement. But I don't want to be negative. We, Jennifer and I, my wife, we, we love being married. And, uh, you know, she really keeps me honest because she's sitting right there. I don't think I could say that if she didn't agree. We, we love being married. We love marriage. We tell couples if we do premarital counseling, that's usually one of the first things I say. I love being married. It's been a great blessing in my life, but we often need to encourage one another in our Christian life and in our Christian marriages. So that's the point of of tonight. And, you know, if you open a news app and scroll through the news for more than a minute, which may not even be a good idea, but if you do, you're going to encounter some really wonky stuff about marriage nowadays. We, we live in a strange time. Uh, the words of Gladriel at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings uh, might seem very appropriate in our time where she says, the world is changing. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth and I smell it in the air. Now, Tolkien super fans will know that that's actually Treebeard who said that. And, and when he said it, he was saying it as a positive thing. But as she says it at the beginning of that movie, it's not intended to be communicating something positive. What she is saying is something kind of cosmically strange is going on and it's impacting the way things ought to be. Now, if we were to carry that over away from the fake Middle Earth and carry it to our own real earth, we would know, well, the reason things aren't the way they should be is because sin has come into the world. And what we need is to understand what God has done about that. And kindly and graciously, he's revealed himself to us in the pages of the Bible. So we are often nowadays, when it comes to the topics of gender and marriage going back to the very beginning to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 to look at the rock solid foundations of the world that God made and and marriage we we find the very best answers to the questions what what is a man what is a woman what is a marriage we we find those best answers here in the early chapters of of Genesis. But this is about so much more than just cultural analysis. I think there are some things here in these early chapters that are immediately applicable for each one of us as married people or soon to be married. Do we have any engaged couples in here? I want to put you on the spot. Okay, great. So married or soon to be married people, um, there's some stuff here that is immediately applicable in your everyday life. So we're going to go to Genesis 2 
and talk about the creation of marriage and from that pull out some application that I, help, I hope will help us in our married, married relationships, but also as we relate to other people and other things. So there's, there's a very practical edge to what we'll be doing tonight, uh, even as we look at this, this creation account. So Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll start. And before we're done tonight, we'll jump also to the New Testament. So we've got an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage about marriage. Three very simple points. Oh, there are only one word points to make in each one of those. And then three points of application at the end. So we've got three sets of three. I mean, that sounds better than nine points, doesn't it? But we, all right. So we got, we got three sets of three to do tonight that I hope will encourage you in your marriage. The first set of three is going to come out of Genesis chapter 2. So I'm going to begin with verse 4 and read some of this and make some comments. Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. It's kind of an interesting phrase there at the end. Here's God making the world and describing the things that are needful in the world. And there's, there's almost, it's not negative, but there's this hint of something important that's missing in God's good creation. There's no man to work the ground. So humankind, mankind being in the world is good. God's creation is good with people in his creation. That's kind of countercultural nowadays, which is interesting. But God is telling us that the world he's making needs a man in it. The world needs a man. Verse 6, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, this breath, there is, there is breath in all of the animal creatures that God made, and yet with the man... The, the breath is breathed into him from, from God. So mankind is the only part of God's creation that is blessed this way and created this way by God and therefore very special in God's creation as created in his image, having even this breath of life, this spirit of life from the creator, creator God. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So it was beautiful. There was plenty of food there. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this tree of life, of course, represents an, an eternal future for the man and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the righteousness of God 
Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So ancient people, I think, would have been a lot more excited about all that than we are. Uh, this is like they're in a superstore, and everything that they need for life is all around them. That's what this description shows. The, the beauty, the comfort, the fruit, the veggies, the plenty of waters flowing around. This is a wonderful place to live. It is an abundant place where God has placed this man. And then in verses 11 through 13 and 14, there's a description of these rivers, further description of the garden that God had placed the man in. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here's tasks for the man to do. God had asked him to subdue and fill the creation that he made. And so here the tasks are outlined. The man is to work the garden and keep the garden. So work is introduced. There's, before any sin has come into the world, there's nothing bad about work. Uh, the problem with our work in this life is the sin and the frustration that we feel because of our sinful hearts and the fallenness of, of creation uh, that has come when Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord. But work itself is good. And here's Adam. He's given this joyful task of doing this work in the garden. And it's, it's wonderful that he has it. Verse 16, God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, we won't have time tonight to unpack all the implications of that 16th and 17th verse, especially as they become such a big part of the narrative in Genesis chapter 3. But we know that this is the covenant that God is making with the man and then with the woman who's to come. And they break it. They rebel against God. They do not obey what He has instructed them here. And as a result, this entire wonderful, beautiful creation that God has made is plunged into all kinds of trouble. But even in the midst of that, God gives the good news that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the serpent's head. That's Genesis 3.15. It's sort of the first, first flash of gospel that we find early in the pages of the Bible. And tonight, we can give thanks to God for our Savior Jesus Christ, who's restored our relationship with God that was broken here in uh, this narrative in, in Genesis 3. But we don't have time for all of that, but super important, of, of course. We want to get back to the man and the woman. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Which, if we had begun reading in Genesis 1-1, this would have been a shocking statement for us. Because in the Genesis creation narrative, God says again and again that the things He is doing... And the creation he is building is good. He says it's good, 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 it's good. It's very good, in fact. That's all through Genesis 1. So then when we get to this verse in Genesis 2, and all of the sudden, God says, it's not good. 
that ought to get our attention. So this is a pivotal moment in, in the narrative. What's not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. So this isn't a sin thing. Sin hasn't come into the world. But God has just given us a heads up that creation isn't good, what well, we already saw, without a man in it. And now He's saying this creation isn't good with only a man in it. It's not good for him to be alone. He needs a helper fit for him. So God is going to make for this man a helper. The end of verse 20. Again, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, this word helper, you probably heard this before, but I think it's worth saying again. The word helper, it, it does mean helper. And it is used in the Bible as a kind of a subordinate who is supporting uh, a superior. But it isn't always used that way. It's also used to describe God Himself and the way He helps His people. So there's a lot of dignity and honor in this word. It's a good word, a useful word. And God is saying that the man needs a helper like that to support him, to encourage him, to help him accomplish his mission in the world, to fill it and subdue it. And so God is going to correct or add so that the man is not alone. So verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, there's a lot of mystery here about how God is doing this. But clearly, it's a powerful picture. One commentator has said God didn't make the woman from Adam's head to rule over him or from his feet so that he might tread upon her, but from his side so that she might be beside him, close to his heart so that he might feel deeply his attachment to her. It's kind of romantic, you know, that part. But God made a woman for the man. Now, when we see a young couple an engaged couple uh, or a young married couple, we might say it's like they were made for one another. And, and, that, and it is like that. But this is a woman who was very clearly made for her husband, for Adam. Like, literally, right? God made this woman and God gave this woman to, to Adam. In fact, it's, it's interesting, we have our traditions um, which really they are, many of them, uh, just traditions where at the wedding ceremony, the traditional ceremony, we have the father, father give away the bride, uh, present the bride to the groom. And I was just thinking uh, this week going through this that God the Father is giving this woman to be married to Adam. It, it says it right there at the end of verse 22. God made the woman and brought her to the man. Okay, that's kind of neat. But it also matters. It's going to matter in a moment. So hold on to that thought. God the Father gave this woman to the man. 
Now, Adam then speaks. So these are the first human words on record, actually. And they're written as a little poem. And I think in the ancient context, they're intended to be, you know, kind of romantic. So, you know, these first words uh, on record, I think Adam could have penned these in like a little, a little note, you know, and put them on the nightstand for uh, Eve to find or something. Here's what he says. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, maybe it's not that romantic, but it's a pretty good start. You know, it's a pretty good start. He's communicating his excitement about the woman, and he's communicating the closeness that they have to one another. They, 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 are, they are together like one flesh. And then there's this comment in verses 24 and 25. And we're really getting to the meat here of what we need to be talking about tonight. In verses 24 and 25, uh, this could be kind of an editorial comment that Moses, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, is making about the story we just read. Or it could be a direct statement from God. Either way, it's in the Word of God, and God is communicating this to us as truth. Okay, So here's the edit- editorial comment. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is very significant. I I don't know if I ever do marriage counseling without talking about these verses right here. And I mean that. This is very important, what we just read. And... I'm not that really that smart. I mean, I know it's important, well, because it's in Genesis chapter 2, but also because when the Lord Jesus and when the Apostle Paul talk about marriage, they talk about Genesis chapter 2, and they share these verses. So that's a clue for us that there's something very important for us right here in Genesis chapter 2, all of it that we looked at, but I want to focus especially on verses 24 and 25. Okay, and this is where we get our three points, our first, our first set of three. Because here we want to talk about priority, unity, and transparency. So those are our three points right here. Priority, unity, transparency. First of all, priority. You know, for most people, I, I know it's not true for everybody. I know it's not true uh, of all of you because I know you guys. But for most people, in their lifetime, for the first, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 some years, the most important under God, now this whole conversation that we're having tonight, we're assuming that our number one priority is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Okay? Under God, For most people, the the number one priority relationship or human relationship for the first 18 to 20 some years of their life is the relationship that they have with their parents. That's, That's the priority relationship. But notice when marriage happens, well, God the Father gave Eve 
to Adam, right? And then the editorial comment here in verse 24 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So there is a transfer, not, not just a, you know, the bride is given away and now they're a couple and off they go to live happily ever after. No, there's, that's true. But, but more than that, there's a transfer of relational priority that is taking place in a marriage. So no longer for the man or for the young lady are the mom and dad the priority relationship, the number one human relationship. The number one relational priority now for the husband is his wife. And the number one relational priority for the wife is the husband. And I think I can say this with 100% confidence based on what we just read right here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's, it's about priority. You know, Eve and Adam, they didn't have biological parents to leave. So what's the point of this being in here? It's to teach us about priorities. The marriage relationship is the number one human relational priority. So that's the first point. Second one is about unity. The, the man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife or cleave. Is that in the King James? <laughs> really? Leave and cleave to his wife. And the, they shall become one flesh. This could hint at marital intimacy. Now, in fact, I'm sure it does, and that's, that's wonderful. Uh, but really, the metaphor is even better than that because the metaphor is that they are united like one person. So in the marriage, the number one relational priority for the husband is the wife and for the wife is the husband. And the two are united with one another that, like one flesh. So, you know, Jesus, he's, he's talking about the devil, but he says a, a house divided cannot stand. You know, he said that long before Abraham Lincoln said that. But it's a good principle, and we could apply it. You know, a, a divided marriage doesn't stand. There shouldn't be divided. So marriage, your, your, your marriage, guys, is your number one relational priority. Ladies, it's the same thing. And you ought to be unified in your marriage with one another. And by the way, there is so much joy in that unity. I'll tell a story in a minute. Maybe. All right. The third thing is about transparency. So here's verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Jennifer and I had, uh, we, we had Genesis chapter 2, at least verse 24, maybe verses 23 and 24 uh, on our wedding napkins. And, uh, you know, I don't know, do people still do that? Do they put Bible verses on wedding napkins? Is that an old person thing, I guess? Any, did anybody else ever do that? You know, we had a verse on, okay, I guess it was just us, you know. <laughs> but uh, we made a, a lot of sort of uh, awkward, you know, off to the side jokes about how we should have included verse 25 <laughs> on the wedding napkins. It's just a little bit awkward, 
you know. And I taught this in, in the high school a lot of times, and, you know, the kids would always kind of giggle when you get to verse 25. It is a little bit of a surprise verse there. And, and it probably does hint also at, at marital intimacy and, and uh, the joys of marital intimacy. But again, just like with the, the point about unity, I think the metaphor is better than the reality of being naked and unashamed in marriage. Because the metaphor would be just openness before another person. You know, when you when you feel ashamed, you you cover, you cover, you know. Um, you know, I mean, I've reached a time of life where I, you know, I don't I don't go to the swimming pool without one of those swim shirts that you put on, you know, because <laughs> you, you just don't you just cover, you know. And so that's that's the way we do. But in in marriage, you're uncovered. So there shouldn't be there shouldn't be secrets in, in a marriage normally i mean I, I suppose if you're making nuclear bombs or or planning a vacation getaway you know what you know what i'm saying i mean we could cook up an exception i'm sure but uh, there normally shouldn't be secrets in in a marriage there should be an openness in a marriage and if you find that your mo in your marriage relationship is to cover and to have dark corners of your marriage is not good so, but I want you all to receive this as very good news, all right? So when I say you need to make your spouse your number one priority and you want to be unified and not divided as a couple and you want to be naked and unashamed, this is all good news that I'm giving you, okay? And I can testify to how it's good news. I, I have for, uh, I've told this to some of you, for years, uh, so I, I look at our marriage financially in like three phases so there was the first phase when we were uh early married and uh we were so careful financially and uh went really great my beloved she did all the the bookkeeping you know accounting and stuff she did a great job and uh, i mean we bought a house while we were in college and it was just like wow you know the lord was very kind and and then I think it got a little stressful for her, so she gave over the management of things to me, which was the second phase. And let me just say, <laughs> didn't go so well, okay? And it just got worse and worse, and I was doing some shady stuff. Uh, I had, like, borrowed some money from here or there and, and stuff, and it, it really was just, a, it wasn't good, you know? And uh, what I was doing was hiding, okay, and you know what that is? That's a burden. That's dark. It's like, I mean, we've always been happy, haven't we? So it's not, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. We were, we were going on having a good time, but I just knew, you know, to know there's something that she doesn't know about. Okay, so then one day we, uh, we, went, to, we went to dinner at the Texas Roadhouse, and we were sitting there talking, and she was like, Honey, I've been thinking about how busy you are, and uh, I've decided I, you know what? I just have decided I got some time. I, I'd really like to kind of take over doing the bookkeeping again. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, crap. 
now she's going to know, you know. She's going to know about the, the mess and stuff. And so I was like, great, you know, yeah, we'll talk about that. Maybe, I think I got some time on my calendar, you know, a month from now. But anyway, but I finally got around to talking to her and just sharing all the stuff. And uh, she, she never was condemning towards me about it. She never was. And, uh, and she took it all and she cleaned it all up. And it's all wine-abbed. I can't spend a dollar without both of us knowing about it. And, and you know what that is? That's transparency and unity. And it's like as soon as, as, soon as I told her, it didn't matter anymore about the mess. Right? I mean, not that it's good to be in debt. It's great to get out of debt. Uh, I can attest to that too. But it, it didn't matter about the debt once we both knew about it. Then we're in it together. You hear that? So that's romantic right there. Right? There's songs about that, right? <laughs> we're in it together. It might be ugly, but we're doing it together. You know, that's, that's a beautiful thing about marriage. And it's not just romantic because it's in the songs. Um, and it's not just romantic because it's part of our family history. It's in the Word of God, right? She's my number one priority. And, and we ought to be unified and we ought to be transparent with one another. And when we are, there is joy in marriage that you can experience that you won't experience when you've got those walls up. When your priorities are wrong, when you're not unified, and when you're just covering all the time. So that's our first set of three points. The next ones will be faster. Priority, unity, transparency. But let's skip ahead now to Ephesians 5. And I commend Ephesians 5 to you. If nothing else takes place in your marriage tonight, I hope you will take Ephesians 5 with you and pray through it. I, I prayed through Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. I'm not a spiritual guy, okay? I'm a, very tempted to a spirituality, which is why I've prayed through this hundreds of times. And I mean, really, like in my devotions, I've prayed through this. Because I've, God, help me to be this kind of husband. So I commend it to you like that. Okay, pray through it. Ask God to, to help you do this. Now, verses 22 through 24 are really written for wives. And for many years, I would just skip that part. <laughs> and I'd think, well, that's really for her, not for me. Uh, but I did start praying through that too and just asking God to help me be a good leader in our home. You know, to be the kind of guy that she would want to submit to. Um, which is in the rest of it too. But I, I, so I did kind of start to think about those verses a little more. Verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So wives should submit to husbands. They should Follow their husbands. The word is a little bit richer than the word obey that you find in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. 
children obey in a very subordinate way. Wives submit in love to their husbands just like they submit in love to their their savior. So wives should be submitting to and following their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, this set of verses, verses 25 through 27, they're addressed specifically to husbands. I do think there are some universal principles here that could apply to the wife as well. Listen, we're assuming complementarity and different roles tonight, okay? I don't have time to unpack all of that. Okay, that's assumed. If you want to talk to me about that afterwards, yes, I'll talk to you about it. So I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to do here. But what I want to say is this. This would be the first of the three points I would want to make here from Ephesians 5. You should love your spouse. The husband is to love his wife. Now, his specific task is to love her like Christ loved the church and give himself up for her. By the way, I think a guy who does that routinely is going to be a guy that a wife is going to be eager to submit to. You see how that goes together? You know, I kind of always picture like, you ever get stuck at a door with somebody and you're like, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. I think that's a little bit like what's going on here. God has given the man the responsibility to, to lead, but if he's leading like Christ loved the church and he's given himself up for her, she's going to want to follow pretty, pretty readily. So it's, there's this reciprocal love thing going on here. It's wonderful. That's what you see in a marriage. You have love in a marriage. By the way, men, uh, this is a little bit of a side. If you've got a situation where you're looking at your marriage and, and you're wanting to know who does what, uh, just ask yourself this question. The passage we'll see at the end says that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So you ask yourself, in the relationship between Christ and the church, who does what? Who's responsible? Who gets it done? Who makes it happen? Christ does. What, what, what percentage of the deal is the church accomplishing? Christ is doing it all. So you ask yourself, men, in your marriage, who's responsible for your marriage? You are. What are you responsible for in the marriage? Everything. You're responsible for everything. Okay, so, you know, when we start throwing around, you know, uh, our complementarian roles and embracing those, praise God and glory be to God. But understand, man, what we're saying is we're responsible for everything. That's, that's how we love our wives. So there's nothing going on in your home that, you, <laughs> that, that it isn't your fault. I guess maybe that's not the right way to say it. But that you aren't responsible for, okay? That you shouldn't be challenged by and, and, and encouraged to lead in and motivated to lead in. God is calling you to do that, man. That's, that's God's calling on your life. Love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that's the first point. In a marriage, your spouse should be loved. Secondly, 
cherished. So here's this little illustration that uh, Paul uses. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So here is uh, a guy. He's just going to take care of himself. We're good at this, aren't we, guys? I mean, we like our flesh just fine. We always think we look great. You know, it doesn't matter what's going on. We look in the mirror and we think we look nice. And uh, we, we like to look out for ourselves. We'll go to the refrigerator and open it up, see what's in there and get it out and eat it. We like to sit in an easy chair uh, Sunday evening and watch the Titans play. And whatever it is, you know, we, we, we take care of ourselves. And Paul is saying, yeah, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And the end of verse 28 God wants us to treat our wives that way also. God wants us to cherish our wives. And again, ladies, I think it's not wrong for me to say you should cherish your husband. So in a marriage, your spouse should be loved and should be cherished. And then finally, preferred. I won't spend much time on this one because we just did it. There it is in verse 31. There's our verses from Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So you, you men, you are going to prefer your wife because she's your number one priority under the Lord. Women, you're going to prefer your husband because he's your number one priority under the Lord. So, Genesis 2 talks about priority. Unity, transparency, Ephesians 5, your spouse should be loved, cherished, preferred. I know they're very similar. Who cares? So what? All right. I'll tell you why I'm talking about this stuff. And I think Kevin and I, Kevin does the premarital uh, counseling, uh, leads the team and does a bit. And I do a lot of marriage counseling here at the church. And so I'll just go ahead and disclose, you know, a lot of what we're talking about. These are things that kind of bubble up in the counseling that we do. And so I talk about this stuff all the time. And so here's why it matters. There are so many things in this world that are, are after your heart competing with your spouse for your attention. So many things. And so when we're doing our Bible study and we're clicking through Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, man, that's great. Yeah, she's my priority and we're unified and we're transparent and man, I love her and cherish her and prefer her. But then we get busy with our hobbies or our projects or some cause or some group of friends and they, those things start to bust in to those priorities. Work can do it. Even ministry, because it's important, you know. Sex. Money. Children. You know, I, I've heard so many people say, oh, no, no one's more important to me than my children. You know, that's an unbiblical statement, right? It's an unbiblical statement. 
Trust me, you guys. You'll bless your children by prioritizing your relationship with your spouse. That's exactly how you'll bless your children and take care of them. But to say they're your most important relational priority is not biblical. Uh, In-laws, I have seen so many situations where extended family were like the third member of a marriage. It's not good. It's, it's not biblical. It's, it's not. God has given us in His Word these relational priorities. So let me, let me sum it up like this. And this is the third and final set of three. This is simplistic, and I realize it can't be some of you guys are good at logic. You're a lot smarter than me. and You'll be tempted to challenge me, okay? It's fine if you can help me be a better teacher. I've accepted and I have been invited, okay? But don't miss the point, okay? <laughs> Just because you're smarter than me, I got a good point here. I don't want you to miss it, all right? Because I know these things might not be exclusive all the time. Like, my wife is my number one relational priority, but if I just stay home with her on the couch all the time instead of going to work, I'm not serving her, okay? So that would just be one example. So I, I know there's all kinds of stuff like that. But here, I think this will serve you when you get in the fog, okay? It's God, your spouse, and everything else. You just, just bank that away somewhere in your mind. And here's how it'll serve you. It'll serve you when you and your wife have planned that getaway weekend to Florida and your mother decides she's going to join and you love your mom and she's upset that you don't want her to come. Okay? You can, I hope you hear God's voice and not mine, but if it's just mine, it's God, your spouse, and everything else. Right? Okay, you have to work overtime sometimes. You just have to. You're serving your family. I don't want to put a burden on any of you if you're working hard to serve your family. You know, God bless you, and I, I admire you for doing that. But if you're just chasing money and trying to make an extra dollar and you're taking that extra shift, maybe you're just taking it to impress your boss or something like that. Listen, it's God, your spouse, and everything else. Maybe you're golfing with the buddies and yeah, you need your guy time. There's nothing wrong with that. We need godly friends. We do. I, I could use plenty of friends. Um, but I got to remember, it's God, your spouse, and everything else. Okay, so these are our three sets of three. You know, if you, you we, we wanted you to really listen and uh, be in your Bibles. And so, we, you know, we don't have a flashy handout or anything, but just, I'll just go over it one last time. Your spouse is your number one priority and you ought to live in unity and transparently. Your spouse should be loved and cherished and preferred above all other human relationships. And it just really helps when you get lost in the fog of life and different relationships are pulling you different ways. Remember, this is God's design. It's God, the spouse He gave you, and everything else. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this simple, simple stuff that you've given us in the Word of God. And uh, I have two prayers that's kind of in tension here, Lord. The first is, if any of us tonight are convicted...
because we know we are getting our priorities out of order again and again. I pray, Lord God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would prompt us to respond with repentance and changed behavior for the glory of God and for the good of our spouse, Lord. Help us to do that. Help us to take it seriously, Lord. This is serious business because you are calling it to us to it calling us to it but lord there's also serious joy in this if we listen to your word and organize our marriage like you designed it to be lord so i just pray father you would help us to respond to any conviction that we may feel but my second prayer lord would just be that no one in this room would would leave with an unhealthy unchristian burden in their heart but that they would just come to you knowing that you are a gracious and good god that's why you're giving us this wise and good instruction in your word because you you love us and you are gracious to us and you give us good gifts you give us men wives and you give women husbands these are wonderful gifts lord and then you tell us how to relate to one another it's such a gift so i pray father even if we're challenged and we know we need to grow that we would just be receiving all of this with happy hearts, with eager and excited hearts, Lord, to be better husbands, to be better wives, Father. We, we pray for this, Lord, and we pray that you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash you.